The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host, and before we start today's show, I would like to thank Mary for her recent donation. So today is Thursday, it's time for the weekly visit of my most very good friend, Dr Peter Hammond, so let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am, thank you Andrew. Excellent. Great to have you on, as always. And Peter has got a presentation for us today entitled The Real Story of What Makes a Just War. So where would you like to start us off today with this topic, Peter? Well, we certainly do not want to start off with Hollywood. Uh, They wouldn't know justice (laughs) if they tripped over it, Uh, nor would the mass media, the lamestream, mainstream uh, disinformation industry. We certainly are not going to get our guidance from the politicians especially when you think politics, poly, many ticks, blood-sucking parasites, politics, many blood-sucking parasites. I think that describes a lot of our politicians out there. They, uh, in fact, um, I know a lot about cancer, having had my wife battle it 11 years, and I can't help but notice the middle letters of cancer's ANC, um, short for the African National Congress, which uh, is unfortunately the communist bunch ruling our country and ruining our country is, is more accurate. And uh, the fact is, uh, so whenever I write about a government, I speak about a cancer government with a small C, a capital A and C, and a small ER, and that's picked up and there's a lot of people using it around social media and been doing this for, for a couple of decades now, and it, it's quite popular in South Africa to refer to the government as the cancer. Because a cancer is a cell that does nothing good for the health of the body, but actually breaks down the health of the body. And in many cases, many of our politicians who are meant to be your humble servants are anything but humble, and they're certainly not serving us. They're serving something, but they're serving the New World Order, maybe. They're serving World Economic Forum, perhaps. Uh, They are not serving the citizens of of the land. But when it comes to uh, what makes a just war, I think the gold standard is St. Augustine. Now, Augustine of Hippo, a great Christian theologian, certainly the greatest theologian of the first millennium. And uh, if John Calvin is accepted as the greatest theologian of the second millennium of church history, uh, Augustine certainly of the first uh, century of of the uh, uh, church's history. Uh, Augustine lived in the third and fourth centuries, and uh, he lived in North Africa. In fact, interesting how most of the great church leaders in the first few centuries of church were Africans, North Africans, uh, Oregon, Cyprian, 
uh, Irenaeus, Ignatius, Tertullian, and Augustine being the greatest of them all. And, and so when Islam snuffed out North Africa as, as a great Christian stronghold, uh, the church lost 50% of its uh, numbers worldwide uh, with the loss of the Middle East and uh, North Africa uh, to the Islamic Jihad in the 6th and 7th century. So uh, that was quite catastrophic. But Augustine wrote Confessions and City of God, amongst others. And in City of God, he lays out the principles for a just war. And this, I think, is very helpful at this time as we've been bombarded with so much propaganda and so much drumming up the enthusiasm, beating the war drums, and trying to mobilize the most irresponsible things that could just lead one to a third world war and nuclear exchanges that would be absolutely devastating to civilization. And you've got incendiary, irresponsible uh, comments and plans being voiced by people who really should not be out without adult supervision, yet many of them are talk show hosts and running whole programs and editors of publications and even um, cabinet ministers at, in the State Department, the Foreign Office. It's it's incredible. Um, I look back to when Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were around and think it was so nice when we had adults in charge, but right now we seem to have uh, the opposite. So the theologian Augustine of Hippo taught that a Christian can be a soldier and can serve both God and his country honorably. After all, our Lord Jesus spoke positively of the centurions that are mentioned in the scripture. And when the soldiers came to John the Baptist and asked them what they should do, John the Baptist did not say, leave the army. He told them how to be good soldiers. Don't take money from anyone by force. Be contentedly paid. Don't intimidate anyone. And so uh, he, he laid out principles for being a good soldier rather than tell him to leave. So in the Bible, we see, in fact, passages where uh, the Christian walk is compared with that of being in the military. And so God is not a pacifist. And we are told to be like a good soldier of our Lord Jesus Christ. So 2 Timothy 2, verse 3 to 4, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier, seeks to please his commanding officer. So uh, we, we know from the scriptures that the centurions mentioned in the Bible are commended in different ways. The centurion at Capernaum was praised for his faith, and Cornelius and the Italian regiment had the great honor of being the first Gentiles to be baptized in the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And throughout the Bible, the work and calling of soldiers are frequently mentioned, but never with the suggestion that in and of itself, being a soldier could be dishonorable or unchristian. And uh, you think of how many of the great men in the Bible are Christians, uh, are soldiers. Um, much of the Bible is written by soldiers and for soldiers. Abraham, the father of the faithful, resorted to military action to rescue Lot from the four heathen kings and beat them, Genesis 14. Um, Abraham must have been doing something pretty serious to have had such well-trained uh, servants and household workers that they were able to defeat the armies of four heathen kings to rescue his nephew uh, from them. Uh, Joshua was a mighty man of war, great soldier, commanded the Israelite army and defeated the Malachites and, and conquest the promised land. King David, a man of the gods and heart, the writer of much of the Psalms, a great soldier. And many of the Psalms are, in fact, thanksgiving for victory in battle, prayers before battle. And uh, David was able to 
Right, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle, my loving kindness, my fortress, my high tower, my deliverer, my shield, and the one whom I take refuge, who subdues the nations under me. So uh, we we can see that, in fact, uh, Christians can be soldiers. And so uh, St. Augustine says, yes, a Christian can serve God and his country honorably as a soldier. But he spelled out the Christian criteria for just war. And most of the church for the last 15 centuries has accepted St. Augustine's just war uh, as the gold standard that we should evaluate all wars by. It would be very helpful to bring that to bear on our current narrative, propaganda, that's been shouted at us uh, from every uh, electronic device out there. So the three aspects of a just war is just ad bellum, just in bello, and just post bellum in Latin. The right to go to war, a just cause, a right conduct or just conduct during the war, and a just conclusion to the war. So for a war to be just, it needs a just cause. Innocent life must be in imminent danger, and intervention must be needed to protect life. And only duly constituted authorities may wage war. And this war must be as a last resort, only after exhausting all peaceful means. There's no possibility of negotiation. There's no possibility of uh, being able to settle this war without further violence. No, it's got to be a just cause. And there must be a reasonable probability of success to justify involvement in any war. That's the just cause. The second, the just conduct, just in bello, the right conduct during the war. Just conduct in a war requires that it be limited. Wars must be limited to military targets and not endanger civilians, nor may it danger the environment. In fact, the scripture is clear that soldiers are not even to chop down fruit trees during a war. Uh, The benefits of the war must be proportional to the costs and risks of the war. Now, uh, why can't you chop down a fruit tree during a war? Well, because you're meant to be fighting for a better future. And if you cut down fruit trees, you're destroying the future. And so there's got to be a concept of the benefits of the war must be proportional to the costs and risks of the war. In any just war, there must be a clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants, between military and civilians. And enemy combatants who surrender or who are captured are not to be mistreated in any way. Uh, These principles have been well spelled out also in the Hague Rules of Warfare and the Geneva Conventions. And uh, these, uh, when you get down to them, Uh, support the principles of just conduct during a war. And then minimum force. Uh, There must be, by military necessity, a principle of minimum force, meaning every means must be taken to limit excessive unnecessary death and destruction. And combatants may not use weapons or methods of warfare which are evil, uh, which would include things like poisoning wells, for example. A just war must be concluded with a just peace. Revenge is not to be permitted, and life and property are to be respected, and the rule of law is to be upheld. So, well, (laughs) the moment you look at these uh, biblical standards, it's clear there have been many senseless wars, a lot of unnecessary wars, in which neither side was at all concerned with righteousness, and where both sides share guilt. Uh, However, we can discern in history many necessary wars, which are defensive and just. So just a few examples, you know, what wars actually improved life? and brought about a just peace, which wars were worthy of the risks and the costs involved and produced a better future. Well, with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and see the Battle of Tours 
8732 in France was a landmark battle, a watershed battle. Charles Martel the Hammer rallied the Christian soldiers of Europe on the plains of Poitiers in the Battle of Tours and courageously stood firm, resisting six furious charges of the Muslim cavalry, which up till then had been unbeaten. Muslim cavalry, which had swept all before them in the Middle East and North Africa, Spain, Portugal, and now it crossed the Pyrenees and they were attacking France south of Paris, the Battle of Tours and the fields of Poitiers. Uh, there they were defeated and routed and they sent fleeing back across the Pyrenees Mountains and never again became a serious threat to France and, and the heartland of Europe. So Battle of Tours was definitely a just war and, uh, and good things flowed out of it. The Reconquista, which liberated Spain from 800 years of Islamic occupation, oppression, 1492, um, was a just war. The Great Siege of Malta in 1565, tremendous courage, tenacity, and it saved Europe from invasion. It, it was a very important watershed battle. Uh, the Battle of Lepanto, 1571, the last naval battle, the last battle by naval forces that are powered by rowing, rowing battle. One of the most important naval victories in, in history. When the Austrian and uh, Spanish fleet destroyed the Turkish fleet and uh, a phenomenal success, uh, something in the region of 240 enemy boats sunk, 30,000 casualties inflicted upon the Turks, uh, and 18,000 uh, Christian slaves uh, who were uh, rowing for the Turks set free. A tremendous victory at the Battle of Lepanto. And uh, the lifting of the siege of Vienna, the Turkish siege of Vienna in 1683, uh, when the Polish winged hussars, knights came charging down uh, upon the Turks and broke their lines and sent them scampering back to Constantinople. I mean, that was another major turning point which protected Europe from becoming Eurabia. So uh, there's no doubt that there are times in history when there have been just wars. And um, I know that the war we were involved in in Rhodesia, fighting against communist terrorism, fighting to protect our land from hostile invaders, terrorists who are planting landmines and roads, who were burning churches down after barricading the congregation inside, massacring missionaries, pastors, children. Uh, these were enemies. These were Marxist terrorists, and we were right to fight them And in Southwest Africa. We were defending peaceful nations from communist terrorist attacks, holding the line against Soviet expansionism during the hot part of the Cold War. We were on the sharp end, and those were in every way defensive wars. They were not foreign uh, military adventurism, <laughs> that hardly fulfills the requirements of, of a just war. Uh, but, you know, even though we were fighting a just war, God guided me during our Bible study and prayer meeting in the South African Army and gave me a vision of responding to communist hate with Christian love. Now, they were sending terrorists to us. Had we ever sent missionaries to them? Had we sent missionaries to Cuba or Russia? Not up till that date, we hadn't. And we need to send missionaries to them. They're smuggling in landmines and limpet mines and grenades and uh, sowing terror in our communities. We need to smuggle Bibles and Christian books into their territories and win converts and make disciples and undermine their communist tyranny with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. And uh, we had the privilege of doing that. And for the last 40 years, it's been my privilege to, to be ministering across 38 countries, involved in eight wars as a missionary, and seeing many countries that used to be communist undermined from within by evangelism and discipleship and with the word of God. And so uh, we 
actually had the tremendous privilege of seeing Mozambique, the least evangelized country in the Southern Hemisphere, not one Bible for a thousand people, not a missionary allowed, churches closed, 8,000 churches closed down, confiscated by the government, in many cases burned down, bolted, chained up, and hundreds of thousands of Christians taken to concentration camps, many hundreds of thousands executed public uh, firing squads and, and executions by commissars. Mozambique was a hellhole, and um, I wrote about this in the killing fields of Mozambique. And uh, today, Mozambique's free for the gospel, churches open again, missionaries fully legal, Christian schools, no problem, easier to open up a Christian school in Mozambique than it is in, even in South Africa. And a Bible's freely distributed. We're able to minister from one side of the country to the other. When I started work in Mozambique, there were only 4% of the total population of Mozambique would have called themselves Protestants. Today, it's more like 34% of Protestants, Evangelicals, Bible-believing, Charismatics, Pentecostals, and others. So we've seen tremendous changes. Uh, Angola was was a communist country with no religious freedom at all, burning of churches like Chilisa Evangelical Church. And we support the resistance movements. Renamo in Mozambique, Unita in Angola, brought in Bibles, trained chaplains, uh, helped the people to resist, gave them uh, the training they needed, uh, discipleship, evangelism, trained pastors, chaplains, medics. And we saw the resistance in Mozambique and Angola win and defeat these Marxist tyrants and dictatorships. And we've seen good fruit come from that all. In Sudan, where the Christians were being targeted for genocide, absolutely wiped out by the jihadist government of Sudan. And we went in, and from 1995 on, I smuggled in hundreds of thousands of Bibles and New Testaments and gospel booklets. I showed the Jesus film in many languages, one of the 27 languages that I showed the Jesus film in. And we had the privilege of training the chaplains corps and the medical corps. And we saw South Sudan changed to such a point that today it's now an independent country and they've broken away, successfully seceded from Islamic Sudan and from Sharia law. So there's no doubt that there have been wars that were just, that were defensive and which resulted in good results uh, where freedom actually came. And uh, uh, it's, it's important for us to recognize that a wise Christian does not seek to selfishly avoid the problems of the world, but courageously steps up in faith to be part of the solution. And um, I praise God that we have friends who are in Ukraine right now, not fighting, but working as missionaries and Christian missionaries and farmers working in Russia as well. And uh, I know a number, in fact, some of the listeners may be interested to know that one of our good friends who's a missionary right now in Ukraine is the granddaughter of President P.W. Buta, one of South Africa's top anti-communist leaders, under whom many of our victories were won during the Cold War against the Marxists. He was Minister of Defense and then Prime Minister, and then President, and he he really increased the South African Defense Force tenfold, uh, massively increased it, gave us our, our best years of being able to be unleashed upon uh, the Marxist forces. And we, we devastated Cuban Meknaz divisions in Angola. It was, it was very key. You can even Google Earth Lomba River today, and you can still see the records of hundreds of Russian armored cars and tanks and BRDMs uh, uh, littering the landscape. They're not going anywhere. Um, it's just, you get shot down MiGs uh, all around the Lomba River and the Lomba River Bridge. And uh, it's it's still, it's visible from outer space through Google Earth. Uh, you can see who won the, the war in Angola. Um, you can see who lost. Uh, it's it's um, very much hard to argue with 
uh, the metal and steel monuments to the failure of the Soviet Union at the high watermark of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. And we've even got Russians who were there who've written books like Angola. We never saw it, not even in Afghanistan or Angola, the beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. And uh, these are, are titles of books that have come out from Russians who were there and who uh, recognized what a key role the South African Defense Force played in blunting the ambitions of the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War 1980s in Angola. Well, uh, I'm convinced that Christians should not be pacifists. If all the Christians became pacifists, would all the jihadists, atheists, communists also become pacifists? Not likely. It's useless for sheep to pass resolutions in favor of vegetarianism while the wolf remains of a different opinion. And for pacifists hoping for worldwide peace, the words of our Lord Jesus come, do not think I've come to bring peace on earth, but I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You have to make peace. It takes action, sometimes military action, most times missionary action. Uh, make God find us faithful to his word and be prepared to defend the defenseless and to rescue the innocent. When we have to fight, may God grant that we'll be fast and accurate to make disciples also and teach obedience to all things the Lord has commanded. I'm convinced the Bibles of the Christians are far more powerful than the bombs of the Muslims, the Marxists, or the Americans for that matter. And so uh, I'm one of those who believes that most of the wars that have happened in the 20th century are not only completely unnecessary, completely wicked, uh, uh, except from the perspective of the defenders, perhaps, uh, but um, I do believe there are times that one has to fight. And uh, if all the people with a conscience refuse to fight, it leaves the battlefields in the hands of men without a conscience. And just to give some examples of how it's important to people with a conscience in a warfare. So, for example, during the Anglo-Zulu War of uh, 1879, the Battle of Isenwana took place, which was the worst defeat the British Army ever suffered at the hands of a native army. Uh, an entire regiment, uh, 1,600 men wiped out by Zulu warriors of Keshweo uh, uh, and King Keshweo's forces uh, overwhelmed. Something like 25,000 Zulus just overwhelmed this British force, spread out at Isamwana and uh, annihilated them. There were, there were very few survivors at all. And uh, uh, this, this was uh, such a disaster, Britain determined on revenge. And uh, there was a huge mobilization and uh, at the Battle of Ulundi, they crushed the Zulus and burned the capital, Ulundi. And when they finally caught the Zulu king, Keshweo, there was a real sense of vengeance and anger. And uh, fortunately, there was a British officer who, who um, loved the Lord. He is a Christian. And when they captured King Keshweo, he ordered his men to present arms and to give the royal salute to the Zulu king as he entered into captivity. Well, when the king was transported down to Cape Town to the castle of Good Hope, the commander, the commandant of the Cape, of the Cape at that time happened to be General Charles Gordon, uh, the famous General Charles Gordon who died in Khartoum a few years later, the same General Charles Gordon who identified the uh, actual Calvary and uh, the, the site of the uh, empty tomb in Jerusalem because the Orthodox and Catholics had gone with visions and dreams to identify the spot, whereas Charles Gordon went there for 14 months sabbatical and studied the scriptures and did archaeological investigations and research and came out with the sites that the Protestants recognize to this day as the real Calvary or Golgotha and, and the empty tomb. So that's why 
It's often called Gordon's tomb and Gordon's Calvary, but it's nothing to do with Gordon. Of course, he just helped identify it. Well, General Charles Gordon was Commandant General of the Cape in 1879. And so uh, he was ordered to take King Kishway of the Zulus and throw him into the dungeon and clap him in irons, quote unquote. Well, he wouldn't do that. He is a Christian. And he uh, was very outspoken about the fact that this was not a just war, uh, that uh, Britain had... Uh, had drawn first blood, that uh, our side were the aggressors, we had attacked the Zulus, they were not attacking us, and that um, the, the king should be treated with uh, royal honours. And so he gave him all the freedom of walking around the castle, the battlements. Uh, he was um, not a, held as a prisoner, he was treated as an honoured guest at the castle. His wives were given everything they wanted and needed for providing the kind of food he wanted and so on. And uh, in fact, General Charles Gordon shared the gospel with him, prayed with him, and um, uh, made sure there was a good Zulu translator to to help him to communicate the gospel to Keshwar, arranged for him to meet Queen Victoria, which he did, and he was later given back his kingdom and some restitution. But uh, these are just examples of how a Christian in even an unjust war can help to bring about some kind of grace and mercy in the midst of what would otherwise be um, unmitigated uh, horrors in many cases. My father, who fought in North Africa in the 8th Army under, amongst others, uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, uh, he had a great respect for his enemy on the other side. In fact, he said that in North Africa, the 8th Army looked at the Africa Corps with more affection and the politicians and people back home who had sent them out, they said, we knew they were suffering the same that we were from sandstorms and fleas and flies and uh, the oppressive heat and uh, thirst and uh, all the different abominable dysentery and other disease that came along with it. And he said, uh, we felt more compassion for our enemy on the other side. And he said, they were gentlemen. Uh, they were they were honorable uh, enemy uh, gentlemen. And he had all kinds of anecdotes of uh, kindness, thoughtfulness, and compassion showed by both sides uh, during uh, a war in North Africa, which in in Europe was quite vicious in many places. But uh, North Africa, there was there was a kindness which came because of particularly having a dedicated Bible-believing born-again man like uh, Erwin Rommel, uh, who uh, was commander of Africa Corps, and, and this injected a, a very different um, mentality towards prisoners and so on. And, you know, when he got the order that commandos even the commanders who'd been sent to assassinate him landed by uh, by uh, a British uh, submarine, and uh, they tried when they were captured. Uh, he was ordered uh, from HQ to um, uh, execute them because you know that these were assassins, uh, partisans, and he refused. He treated them like normal prisoners of war. In fact, uh, we've got South African generals who were captured, uh, such as from six South African infantry, which which is and I was trained in, and uh, when they were captured in in Tobruk. Uh, the South Africans uh, reported being very well treated by Erwin Rommel. He had the officers eating at his table. And when one of his officers, um, uh, one of the South African officers turned up without his hat, Erwin um, Rommel asked where his hat was. And he was informed that one of the Africa Corps officers had taken it for a souvenir. Well, the general was furious and Erwin uh, Rommel gave uh, the order. And before you knew it, this officer came running in, came to uh, a stamp uh, salute and uh, handed back the hat to this um, South African army general. And uh, uh, he was so grateful, he didn't know how he could thank Erwin Rommel, so he gave him his goggles. 
Now, you've all seen the pictures of uh, Erwin Rommel with these goggles on his hat, but they're not German goggles. They're South African goggles. And I don't know how many people have noticed that wasn't standard German issue. In fact, there won't be any other German officers got goggles like those. Those were South African goggles that was given as a gift um, by uh, one of our captured generals uh, to Erwin Rommel out of gratitude for his, his chivalry and kindness. Now, it, things like this, war's bad enough um, without having some some uh, humanity brought in, which is why the Hague's rules of warfare and the Geneva Convention are so important, all of which is based upon the just war theory uh, put forward by St. Augustine. And these are biblical principles. So when you, when you compare these with what's going on uh, now, uh, you just think of, for example, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, publicly handing out AK-47 assault rifles and Molotov cocktails in mass to civilians, people in civilian clothes, men and women and youngsters too, uh, in Kiev. Now, this is such a breach of of the Geneva Convention, Hague Rules of Warfare. You are not meant to have civilians acting as combatants. You're not meant to blur the line between civilians and combatants, between combatants and non-combatants. Now, it's one thing if in a time of crisis you have to recruit into your army or militia uh, men, um, maybe uh, between the ages of 18 and 60, and you give them a short bit of training because time's short and put them in uniform. Now, that's one thing. I mean, that still is accounted for uh, within Hague rule, rules of warfare and the, the just conduct of a war, uh, just and bellow. But if you are ha- going to give weapons of war to civilians in civilian clothes and they were, are to fight in civilian clothes, that makes them partisans, terrorists. They, they have no protection under the rules of warfare, no protection under the just war or under the Hague or Geneva Conventions because uh, combatants are meant to be clearly identified by uniforms. And if they're not going to be wearing uniforms to make themselves uh, vulnerable to a target. And this wasn't even done secretly. This is done on the BBC and CNN and broadcast all over. And so the Russians must know that there are civilians, large numbers of civilians in Kiev who've been issued AK-47 assault rifles and vast amounts of weaponry and crates of Molotov cocktails, petrol bombs, with instructions how to use them. And this just again shows um, how not to run a war. That is not just conduct during a war. And in fact, it's making all the civilians a target. Uh, You just think of another thing. Do you have to contest cities? So uh, out of concern for beautiful cities in the past, uh, in 1940, when Germany was about to attack Paris, uh, they could have, they were were sweeping up uh, France in under six weeks in the Western Front campaign. And they sent um, under white flag negotiations through to Paris uh, to say they didn't want to have to fight over Paris. Isn't it possible to have a handover without any loss of life shelling or anything like that? Because soldiers can't be sent into a city uh, without some kind of softening up of defences and disendangers civilians and national monuments and churches and schools and everything else that's in a city. And so uh, it was agreed Paris would be an uncontested city, an open city. And so there was no fighting over Paris in 1940, nor was any fighting over Paris in 1944. In fact, uh, Germany decided not to fight or turn to Stalingrad, but out of respect for this historic city to evacuate. And it was handed over to the Americans without a fight because Paris was an open city. Same with Rome. And uh, Rome was uh, not contested uh, when the Allies uh, came up there uh, in order to preserve this historic city. 
And you do get those attitudes uh, in war where you've got to decide, is this worth it? Now, the president of Ukraine could decide to to not fight over the cities and evacuate them to save civilians. If you fight in a civilian center, then and you're handing out weapons to civilians, then well, what are you asking for? Uh, basically a Stalingrad-type situation where block by block will be fought. And this means rockets, artillery, demolition charges. And before you know it, it's just rubble. And it's no longer a city filled with historic monuments and museums and libraries and churches and hospitals and schools. It's, it's just a battlefield. And so to avoid that, the Hague rule of warfare and the Geneva Convention and all based on the just war theory of Augustine shows that when you fight a war, you need to work on a just cause, just conduct and a just conclusion of the war. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. I was just, um, you talked about Paris. So I've got a new search engine, folks, and I recommend because it's the browser that I use. It's in its beta or beta stage, whatever you want to call it. And it's brave.com, which I use for my browser. Um, and you just look that up, um, brave search engine, because it comes up search.brave.com, something like that. Um, and the good thing about it is like the browser, it's completely uncensored uh, so that's become my search engine of choice obviously if there's any problems with it i'll let you know uh, i just typed in what immigration has done to paris and the third uh story down from stephen m collins.com i think there's some videos in it uh october uh 2016 but it shows all these mattresses on the streets and all the um you know, clothes lying around and just a complete mess. Um, and obviously, I'm not going to play the uh, the video that's in there. Um, I think there's one in there. It said, but um, yeah, it's it's um, it's interesting, isn't it, Peter? How much more damage has been done to Paris by immigration than was ever done by the Second World War? Uh, your comments. It's, it's a fact. In fact, uh, it goes even worse. And I, I've been to Paris, by the way, and I've, I've seen a lot of those streets which look like absolute shambles, disaster area, catastrophic. Some of it looks like a war zone. In fact, my wife said what amazed her about Paris is how dirty and grimy it was. And she said, uh, it's amazing how the movies make Paris look so glamorous and good because in real life getting there, it's just like, like a squalid slum. And uh, she compared it with Eastern Europe back under the communists and Ceausescu and so on. And in fact, lots of Paris looks like that. It, it, it looks like no-go zones. And there are areas of Paris that the, the police and gendarmes are not really able to go because of how Muslim gangs have taken it over. It's, it's shocking. But do you know, <clears throat> more Frenchmen died from the Allied liberators' bombings than from German military action. That's even counting the soldiers who died. So more Frenchmen, civilians and, and soldiers, died from the Allied bombardments associated with the D-Day landings and uh, the pacification of the society in the liberation 1944, so-called, uh, than died in the Six Weeks' War uh, between Germany and France, 1940, at the Western Front, which was a very sharp blitzkrieg, and you would have thought that was intense. But in fact, um, the the number of, of French casualties from the Germans in the Second World War was much less than from the Allies, who are meant to be their allies, are meant to be their friends and their liberators. But it, it gets even worse than that, uh, in that how much abuse the people in, in Paris and uh, in, in France suffered from the liberators. 
because many of the American troops who came there were actually gangsters from Detroit and so on, and they deserted. And there's a book out called The Deserters, which just gives the story of American soldiers who ran a reign of terror in Paris and other parts of of France after the so-called liberation, uh, where they ran, in, you know, not just smuggling in black market, but huge amounts of of crime and human trafficking and prostitution dens and uh, rapes. And in fact, uh, the the book The Deserters. Uh, claims that there was no incident of German troops having abused French women during the four years occupation by the Germans. But during the liberation by the Allies, the Americans, particularly the black Americans, were guilty of vast amounts of of rape and abuse of of women, uh, in particular in in France. So uh, there are times when liberation is worse than uh, occupation, which is amazing. You know, when when your, your friends cause you more casualties than your enemies did, that's something to really wonder about. And then consider some other things. When you look at the different capitals of Europe, obviously Switzerland escaped the bombings unscathed because of their wise policy of, of armed neutrality. Uh, but if you go to um, Prague, Prague is just magnificent because Prague um, was untouched by the war in, in a real sense. And that's why you can do a lot of films of the pre-war era there because you've got a lot of buildings that had been bombed in Germany and other parts of Europe, but not in, in Prague. Because uh, in Prague, they had a negotiated peace and uh, they handed over without a fight with the Sudetenland being handed uh, back to Germany where, where German speakers were the majority and so on. And that while people may complain about uh, Czechoslovakia 1938 occupation, it was a blessing for the people of Czechoslovakia. They preserved their cities from the kind of devastation that was caused in other places by war. And, uh, you know, you just take something like now what's going on in Ukraine. Does Ukraine have a realistic chance of victory in a war against Russia. And I would think that any responsible military person would say, no, uh, Ukraine is not even 10% the military equipment and personnel capabilities of, of Russia. And in cases like the Air Force and Navy, I mean, they're not even close to 10%. So uh, there's no doubt that, that Ukraine cannot win this war. And uh, could they have avoided this war by some uh, give and take negotiations and so on. Well, yes. In fact, if you if you look at it, what Russia was was from the beginning demanding was neutrality, that they don't join NATO. And uh, as recently as January of this year, 2022, Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, requested from President Biden of the United States a guarantee that America would not put missiles in Ukraine, which Biden flat refused to give such an assurance. And in February. Vladimir Putin requested uh, Biden to meet with him urgently over the crisis in Ukraine, and Biden refused to meet with him over that in February. Now, those are two missed opportunities for peace, and you would have thought peace would be better. But also, uh, when the West so generously sends all these different weapons, javelins and uh, so on, over to, and stinger missiles, uh, to Ukraine, is this actually helping Ukraine? Now, the motives may be good. Uh, to help a country under attack, but is it going to help the people in Ukraine? Isn't it just going to get more destruction, more death, a uh, higher death toll, drag this out for longer, and postpone the inevitable by a few weeks maybe? Because uh, without a doubt, Russia will take Ukraine, and unless there's a peace agreement made first, uh, acceding to their demands. And um, why are we, we are in many ways leading 
Ukraine up the garden path, I'm, I'm talking about the British and American governments, in having told them things like Biden telling uh, Vladimir Zelensky to his face, the United States is behind you, we'll stand with you, we've got your back. And next thing, uh, he resists uh, all the requests and demands from Vladimir Putin, and then that war. And then what help does he actually get from uh, Biden? Well, Biden offers him a flight out, and he says, I don't need flight out, I need ammunition, which is a nice line, probably his most quotable line ever. But is this helping the people of Ukraine? Because What's wrong with giving the Russian-speaking majority areas like Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, uh, the Donbass region, where Russians are about 90-something percent of the population? Anyway, what's wrong with recognizing their uh, independence and uh, whether they get annexed back to Mother Russia or not? Uh, is, is it worth sacrificing the whole country over? Uh, and is it worth having membership in NATO if that's going to lead to a war? Wouldn't it be better to just have armed neutrality like Switzerland? Um, and you can just ask a lot of questions. Is it worthwhile uh, deciding to contest cities like Kiev? Is it worthwhile? Uh, because the Russians know how to demolish a city. I mean, it was done Stalingrad. Okay, nobody could live in it afterwards, but um, they, they, they can do block by block fighting, but that's devastating to the civilization that's been built up there over centuries. So logically speaking, is there any sense in risking world war over trying to get Ukraine part of NATO? Is it worth fighting when a negotiated peace is an alternative and is even being offered? So, you know, when I look at, at just wars, I think, well, this one does not fit the bill from the Ukraine and Western side, uh, quite aside from the fact that um, Vladimir Zelensky is not really a Democrat. He locked up his opposition before the war started. He locked up journalists to oppose them. And his army has been shelling and rocketing Russian-speaking civilians in eastern regions of Ukraine, Donbass, uh, for years, so causing thousands of casualties. So on what basis could one say that, uh, not to mention the corruption and the biological warfare laboratories and, and a whole lot of others, and being a client state of uh, corrupt State Department officials and for Hunter Biden's son and money laundering, not to mention also huge amount of human trafficking. Ukraine is one of the biggest human traffickers for the sex traffic, for prostitution worldwide. So in many ways, this is not a good country, um, uh, even though I have Ukrainian friends and obviously we want the best for them. Uh, but uh, the government is not a good government. And the situation in Ukraine is in many cases quite reprehensible. So you can understand this war was avoidable. And that's a key thing of the just war theory. If you can make peace without going to war, surely that is better. And sometimes what needs to be given or undertaken is worth it. Surely armed neutrality, not being part of NATO, if that would have prevented war, ended the war, is that not preferable to what we have now? Back to you, Andrew. Yeah, so I'm just going to throw something in here that uh, Michael Walsh just put an email out. Um, I'm just going to read briefly uh, what he's got in the email that relates to an article. Just uh, here it is. Right, it's um, one can't blame the Russians. One can't blame the Russians for exposing the NATO alliance's support for Ukraine. Nazis. You don't pass up a propaganda coup like that. However, I do again stress that Ukraine's far-right militias have zero in common with the concept of National Socialism, the NSDAP, or Fascism. In no way does the programme of Ukrainian xenophobes identify with the programme of the NSDAP. 
nor does their ideology reflect that of Mussolini's fascism of the 1920s to 1945, nor does it have anything in common with variations of fascist nations, such as that of Franco's Spain or Salazar's Portugal. In fact, and undeniably, Ukraine's far right identify with Zionism. Among the mercenaries stupid enough to venture to the Ukraine front include Israeli former IDF and policemen. There's a lot less of them now than the numbers who arrived. Ukraine's far-right Nazis are CIA-funded and trained. The notorious Senator John McCain and US Secretary of State Victoria Newland of the Kagan tribe are enthusiastic supporters of those Russia claims of those Russia claims are far-right Nazis. As a veteran National Socialist who has pressed the flesh with every genuine National Socialist fascist leader and organisation worldwide since 1968, I can state unequivocally that no self-respecting nationalist would touch Ukraine's far-right with anything other than a bayonet. And Mike's website is Europe renaissance.com that's europe renaissance.com and uh, he is struggling for funding so please if you are able to help his address is euroman underscore uk at yahoo.co.uk that's euroman underscore uk at yahoo.co.uk so peter do you have any comments on what mike wrote there Yes, I, I think it's very interesting because uh, there's uh, oliver stone who's a communist who i don't like at all but uh, he just brought out a video documentary about an hour and a half on ukraine on fire in which he explores the huge amount of what he calls uh, nazis and fascists and uh, extreme far-right uh, radical nationalist ukrainian groups which are actually bewildering how many there are and how strong they are and how much funding they get from the u.s and from the u.s state department from the cia and yes as senator john mccain uh, happily met with them posed with them just like he did with Al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria. I mean, unbelievable, highly irresponsible senator that John McCain, the Manchurian candidate, I think many people call him. Um, and uh, this is an intriguing thing about all these Israeli-supported Nazis uh, in uh, Ukraine, which sounds like an oxymoron. Um, how do you get Israeli-supporting Nazis? Well, uh, this is an intriguing thing. These these far-right extremists are very identified with Zionism. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And, and um, to some degree, that comes out in Oliver Stone's film uh, a documentary on, on the Ukraine um, on fire. But the thing that, that is unquestionable is that what is in Ukraine right now is a new world order state. And uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum has boasted before this war uh, of his young global leaders, as he calls them, who are WEF prodigies, who he has mentored. Uh, and he's he lifts up his, his examples of the top examples of WEF young global leaders as Justin Trudeau of Canada and Jacinda Ardern of uh, New Zealand. And, <laughs> yes, you can imagine, uh, also Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine. These are examples, his top examples. Uh, by the way, it also includes a uh, present um Cyril Ramposa in South Africa too, sadly. Uh, so we, we've got uh, these uh, young uh, global leaders of WEF, World Economic Forum, all over the place. And World Economic Forum claims that Ukraine is their most important state in the world 
for uh, this is this is where they are testing so much. And let's face it, the present Ukraine regime came to power through a USA-backed coup d'etat, and America put in billions. In fact, if you just take Victoria Newland's quote, um, when uh, she is US Under Secretary of State for Eastern Europe, uh, there she was. Uh, boasting on this documentary by by Oliver Stone on Ukraine and fire that America had put five billion dollars billion five billion into Ukraine to bring about a new government before the revolution in, in nineteen uh, in twenty fourteen, and this included launching three totally new so called independent TV stations in the space of four days in Ukraine between the twenty first of November and the twenty fifth of November in twenty thirteen, uh, US launched three total new independent TV stations in Ukraine, all of which were dedicated as a first priority to discredit and overthrow the old system uh, in, in Ukraine, the democratically elected government, and, and bring about the, the Median Revolution, the Revolution of uh, Human Dignity, the Orange Revolution, they've got different names for it, and uh, to, to uh, bring about this coup d'etat where the uh, president, who was a personal friend of Vladimir Putin and an ally of Russia, got ousted without due process of law at all, and uh, they brought in an unelected government and had uh, most rigged elections. It, it, it was a coup. It was shocking. And uh, there's no doubt that these these far-right ultra-extremist uh, groups, uh, which which are being called Nazis and fascists very inaccurately, um, had massive ties to the whole lot and get huge amount of funding from the CIA and from America. And that these are the people that George Soros is funding. So George Soros has boasted publicly that he's behind Zelensky. Zelensky says, man, Ukraine is a new world order country. This is critical. So when you get a lot of conservative people supporting this current um, fad of, you know, Ukraine, are the innocent aggrieved victims and uh, their cause is just and we all should volunteer and rush over there immediately. And this is like Spain in 1936, as some people have said, uh, we've got to go in and help the communists gain uh, <laughs> what they did in Spain in 1936. Uh, we should stop and ask ourselves, when we find ourselves on the same side as CNN and the BBC and the United Nations and the World Economic Forum and George Soros, we've got to ask ourselves, surely we're on the wrong side and we've been lied to. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And the last uh, item today, um, earthnewspaper.com continues to be a great news aggregation uh, site and newsletter that I get every day from uh, Mark R. Elsis. Uh, and an article he's uh, picked out from the UNS Review, UNS.com, uh, he's uh, got an extract here, which is the best part for me. It's by Philip Giraldi, who's been on the show before, a very accomplished um, writer and researcher. Goodbye, America. A country that cannot control its own borders cannot survive. There is new evidence of how the Biden administration's total disregard for reality, evident in its blundering its way into war with Russia, has severely damaged what once used to be referred to as national security. And while the White House and its media barking dogs continue to push the false argument that Russia's intervention in Ukraine is somehow a threat to the United States, many thousands of illegal immigrants and alleged political refugees continue to enter the country under the radar without any serious attempt being made to determine if the flood of new arrivals is in any way beneficial. This flow of illegals will undoubtedly increase dramatically with the fighting in Ukraine, which will produce the usual wave of refugees, most of whom will likely be Jewish, 
based on the reality of who has power in Washington, D.C., and will be able to influence the selection process. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has already declared that his country is prepared to welcome thousands of Ukrainian refugees and he has predictably appointed a Jewish former Member of Parliament as Government Minister to lead the effort. Appointee Richard Harrington is also a former head of Conservative Friends of Israel. Now that interested me because uh, in the UK we have a scheme that's been set up by what I've been told is the most pro-Israel member of the government, Michael Gove, where if you uh, house a family in your home, a Ukrainian refugee family, not just one person, a family, you get £350, which is about $450, so I don't think that that's even going to cover their food. Um, And the question I have is you have to sign up to keep them for at least six months. But what if... You don't get on. You, you know, first week, you know, I don't like these people. You call the authorities, you say, look, it's not working. Who do you think is going to be leaving? The poor Ukrainian refugees or the evil homeowner who is intolerant of them and, and won't accept their ways and different things like that? I think we know he's going to end up with that house. And according to Dr. Matthew Raphael Johnson... There was a population of about 400,000 Jews in the Ukraine. And we know from the Israeli media themselves and the Israeli government, they were talking about uh, before the war, when it looked like war was happening, about some sort of big airlift to get them out of there. And I'm just wondering if we're going to get a significant portion of these people as refugees in the UK. And what worries me is if you look at the Jewish Talmud, I'm going to give you a couple of quotes and then hand back to Peter for his comments. In their section entitled Baba Bathra 54b, it states, All things pertaining to the Goyim, the non-Jews, are like a desert. The first person to come along and take them can claim them for his own. And also, when it comes to defrauding Christians, see the Jewish document Choshen Hamishpat, where it states, If a Jew is doing good business with an Akam, that's a Christian, it is not allowed to other Jews in certain places to come and do business with the same Akam. In other places, however, it is different, where another Jew is allowed to go to the same Akam, lead him on, do business with him, and to deceive him and take his money. For the wealth of the Akam is to be regarded as common property and belongs to the first who can get it. And then finally, again in Choshen Hamishpat, it states, a Jew may keep anything he finds which belongs to the Akam, which of course is the Christians. So, Peter, your comments, and then please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you. Well, demographics is destiny, and it's extraordinary how America's borders don't matter and Britain's borders don't matter, but Ukraine's borders are very important. And uh, you shouldn't have guns in Britain or anyone shouldn't have, but they are the same people who are ban the guns kind of people are cheering on Vladimir Zelensky for handing out tens of thousands of assault rifles and uh, boxes and crates of ammunition along with multiple cocktails to civilians and civilian clothes in Kiev and other cities. There's a lot of hypocrisy here. It, it's so amazing that there's so many people who, they oppose wars when you are fighting communism and terrorism, but they support wars when it's advancing it and advancing new world order. Uh, they were 
wanting to have uh, support for Russia and in the days when Russia was communist, but now that Russia is not communist, uh, they're all against them. So we can see that that there's so much double standard, so much hypocrisy, uh, and we know that what they're saying is not honest. I mean, we can tell when a politician's lying, his lips move, and even when he dies, he lies still. So I think we need to be super <laughs> cynical and cautious about all the propaganda we've been uh, bull, uh, bombarded with. We need to keep a clear idea of what is a just war and what isn't. So uh, if you would like to learn more on what we've been doing in warfare, because I've been involved 40 years in missions, serving persecuted work in war zones, eight wars, 38 countries over the last 40 years, and I'm just about to bring out a new book on this, Frontline Behind Enemy Lines for Christ, covering this incredible 40 years of uh, behind-the-lines activities and what we've learned uh, in the in these areas, and that's going to upset a lot of our New World Order pro-communist liberal crowd. Uh, so my email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za, and our website's www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you so much, Peter. And folks, don't forget that in all of our show posts on achshow.com, I list several of Peter's other websites as well. So I want to thank Peter so much for his excellent presentation today, the real story of what makes a just war. I want to thank all of you for listening. I will, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. Peter and I will be back with you next week. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.